Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're still hashtag WFH in Westminster Studios, where I'm virtually joined by PwC International Tax Partner and Value Chain Transformation Specialist, Tom Quinn. Tom has spent his entire career focused on the tax implications of cross-border business models, has dedicated considerable amount of time studying our subpart F regulations, and is one of a number of my mentors that I'm honored to have on the podcast. Tom, welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Doug. I'm excited to be here. Episode 48, that is unbelievable. Well done. Thank you, Tom. We just recently had a million downloads for, for all of the Cross-Border Tax wow. Talks. So it's, a, it's, it's an honor to, to keep this moving. Well, before we dig in and dive into a topic that I'm really excited to talk to you about, I first want to talk about our alma maters. I am a third generation University of Missouri alum. Tom, you're a graduate of the University of Illinois. And our basketball teams, I looked this up, have been playing in a bragging rights tournament in December every year since 1976. So a year after I was born. So I've been to over 30 of those games over the course of my life. My question for you, Tom, are we going to be able to watch Missouri and Illinois play in December? Are, are we going to be behind all of this COVID-19 insanity, or at least are we going to be able to get together and watch Mizzou and the Illini face off in what might be a pretty poor basketball game? I sure hope so, Doug. And if we can't, we'll still get together here in my bunker and watch some old game. And, and and you guys are way ahead in the series. I'm not going to share those particular statistics. People can look it up if they'd like. So uh, um, while we are all missing sports a lot, um, while we're working, maybe we can try to provide some entertainment to our listeners and discuss the recent Whirlpool tax court decision. This is a decision that I think many of us have been waiting for years Tom, you and I have been debating for as long as I've been a partner, and I think before then, over the application of the manufacturing branch and the sales branch rules, what are commonly referred to as the 954D2 rules, and how they apply to certain fact patterns and how it works when you have sales activities or no sales activities. And I, I do want to acknowledge that um, based on the debates that we've had, I would like to, to say that uh, apparently you were right, at least on some of these these technical arguments that the tax court judge put put forth. But maybe before we dive in, can you kind of just give us an overview of the, the facts of the case and what was at issue here? I can. Uh, thanks, Doug. Yeah, that would be, uh, I think, a helpful start here. And what happened in the case, Doug, in terms of the background was something which we see very commonly in the uh, operational world that companies are trying to go out and develop low-cost manufacturing solutions. Um, Mexico is a, has been a low-cost provider for the U.S. market and for foreign markets for many years from a manufacturing standpoint. And Mexico offered historically a incentive to get companies to come into Mexico to manufacture called the Maquila regime. And it started out very much as sort of a customs incentive, providing a duty deferred type environment for companies to manufacture in. 
which made it easy for them to come in, move products and components, raw materials and components into a manufacturing site, convert those, and then largely export them uh, outside of Mexico to the US and other markets. Um, so this was a very commonly used uh, manufacturing tool that was available to our clients, and many of them took advantage of it. One of the other things that accompanied this, Doug, this Maquila regime was a special transfer pricing regime as well, and a special direct tax uh, regime as well. So in addition to the indirect tax benefits that were available, it also provided companies the ability to compensate on a related party basis, the Maquila at a sort of, at a very low transfer price, that the conversion cost plus a small markup was all that was required from a safe harbor standpoint for Mexican tax purposes. Similarly, uh, for direct tax purposes in Mexico, the principal in the Maquila arrangement, who the principal, the company that engaged this toll manufacturing plant, uh, to the extent that the principal's activities inside Mexico were viewed to be related to that manufacturing activity, there was a PE exemption available as well. So all around win opportunity for companies uh, and has been around for quite some time. What Whirlpool did in terms of structuring its arrangement is critical to the case. Um, the Mexican manufacturing operation uh, was established as a toll manufacturer. And uh, there was that was done underneath a Luxembourg principle. So they had an established Luxembourg company, established a Luxembourg company that then entered into a contract manufacturing relationship with a uh, disregarded Mexican company, which was essentially a service provider. In this case, the Luxembourg company owned all of the property, plant and equipment in Mexico, hence the need for the permanent establishment exemption, which otherwise from owning that property, plant and equipment, the Luxembourg company might have been viewed as having a taxable presence in Mexico as a result of its own activities. Um, and then what um, Luxembourg did was it went out and it arranged for uh, sales to be made of its product to um, the US and other related parties in the structure. What I think is an interesting in the case, and there's uh, several pages of recitation of the facts in the case, the, the judge in this, in this instance was not shy in terms of characterizing some of the relationships, but he was uh, indicating that with respect to the Luxembourg company, he made it clear that this was a part-time employee that was sitting in Luxembourg, otherwise it was kind of an empty box, adding no appreciable value in his words in the case. Uh, but rather, um, it took a look at the activities as well, which were in the Mexican Maquila, uh, noted that those were all sort of contractual relationships as well, because the it was staffed with seconded employees. Uh, and he, he seemed to be somewhat troubled overall just by the nature of some of the mechanics that were in place around the arrangement. Um, and I think sort of unfairly characterizing the arrangement as artificial, although it's something that we see often very commonly. But what became uh, at issue in the case was the fact that um, the, the income which was being earned by the Luxembourg entity, Whirlpool had, uh, the taxpayer in this case, was claiming that the income was all exempt uh, as not falling within subpart F. Um, it also, the IRS took an alternative position. It claimed that uh, despite 
the fact that the activities might be manufacturing related that as a result of income being allocated away from the manufacturing activities and uh, to the head office, in this case, Luxembourg, that the uh, rules of 954 D2, which relate to the so-called branch rules, were uh, invoked. And as a result that the relating income that was allocated to the head office away from that manufacturing branch activity was uh, subject to subpart F. And that was in fact what the, the court found. It sided with the IRS and uh, held that um, whether or not manufacturing activities were being carried on uh, within that corporate structure, uh, the Luxembourg entity with the disregarded manufacturing activities beneath it in Mexico, that because of the fact that uh, income had been allocated to the head office, that that income was then uh, within the scope of 954 D2 and subject to tax. So I think one of the the important things for for our listeners to to understand is, you know, we have to layer on obviously the non-U.S. tax implications associated with the structure of this type. And so, Tom, I think you did a great job outlining those facts. Um, an important thing to note is that Luxembourg has a generally a, a territorial system. So it generally does not tax income attributable to a permanent establishment outside of Luxembourg, such that Whirlpool took the position um, with the, the Luxembourg tax authorities that because it owned the property plan and equipment, the raw material, the finished inventory, which is just the nature of the tolling agreement that the, the Mexican uh, authorities have, have agreed to. Effectively, they only tax that the, the small return associated with the Mexican legal entity. And they say all of those other activities in, that are taking place at the Luxembourg legal entity do not create a PE in Mexico. Well, the important thing that the judge focused on was that Luxembourg did not tax that income. So what ended up happening was is that there was a small amount of income that was subject to tax in Mexico under the Mekila regime. And then all of those other activities, the owning of the raw, the owning of the finished goods, the property planted equipment, none of that was, was subject to tax in Luxembourg because of the nature of, of their system. And accordingly, there was a big chunk of income that was not subject to tax. And the judge was very focused on the policy of subpart F, which we'll get into, and the statutory policy as articulated when, when subpart F came into the code in 1962, I believe. And, and so that was, I think, a very important element, at least in the judge's view, with respect to, to the fact that there was a big chunk of income that was not subject to tax. The other thing that would mention, which I do think is an important fact, is that the the th the one thing that it seemed to be occurring in Luxembourg was that title was transferring. So because of the nature of the tolling arrangement, the Luxembourg legal entity had title to the product, and then it then transferred that title to the U.S. or the other territories where it where it sold. But there wasn't anything else actually taking place in Luxembourg other than title transfer at at that legal at that legal entity. There was, however, a, a mentioned, and we'll get into this in a few minutes, there was a transfer pricing study that um, apparently said that all responsibility for the distribution, marketing, and sales of products fell to, to Luxembourg. And, and that's a direct quote from the case. But even though that was in the transfer pricing documentation, there wasn't anything that I could see in the record that actually supported any of those activities actually taking place in Luxembourg other than, than title transfer. So 
with that as a factual background, Tom, maybe you, we can start where the, where the judge started and feel free to add any color to, to what I had just mentioned as well. But let's start with the statutory framework under our just general subpart F provisions. And we have kind of normal sub F foreign based company sales, which is D1 and then the, the D2, which is the, the branch rules that you already mentioned. Sure. <clears throat> so, right, Doug, as you're mentioning, so what, what, Section 954 D1 says, or what it's trying to impart is a policy to say that um, it's looking for where you have uh, engaged in a manufacturing activity, for example, which might be uh, within or outside of subpart F. And in taking a look at um, the underlying statutory rules, like what's important to focus on is uh, what the underlying rationale was back in 1962 when the uh, subpart F rules were put together when 954 was developed. And at that time, what was a, a concern of um, the U.S. Congress was the extent that there was passive or mobile income existing, which they felt uh, was easy for a taxpayer to move to a low tax jurisdiction. So you might have a situation where activities which uh, a corporation would carry out from a manufacturing standpoint in a high tax location and which otherwise might be eligible for a manufacturing exception or a same country exception um, from subpart F, you could still separate some of the income associated with that manufacturing and move it to a branch location, away, still within the same legal entity, but separated um, in a, um, reporting standpoint as being part of an exempt branch activity. And so the, the statute was very concerned about that separation. And it was at the heart of what the subpart F rules were put in place for was to manage this so-called portable income or transportable income, which might easily be moved to a, a low tax or no tax jurisdiction. So when we look at the statutory construction and the words around 954 D1 and D2, they're very much focused on trying to identify those situations where you have um, separated or have a separation of that manufacturing income from other income that might exist within the structure. Yeah. And then the, 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 the D2 rules, as, as you had mentioned, those branch rules were, and again, intended to prevent a company from doing what was through a branch that they couldn't do through two separate corporations. And that if those rules apply, they have the operation of treating that branch as a second corporation. And then you have to go through and do the testing for foreign-based company sales as if those were, were two separate corporations. Interestingly, and to remind particularly some of our newer practitioners, that rule was well before the check the box rules. And so things have changed a lot since we've gotten the, the, the check the box rules, which has made it, I think, much more common and frankly, significantly easier to operate in, in branch form. And so I think it has then caused, you know, just a lot of taxpayers to, to have to, to deal with these structures and, and the regulations. So, so Tom, maybe let's kind of dive into the case and some of the rationale because the judge was very, very focused on on the the statute here, and you know there is a lot of I think mind numbing. I, I couldn't call it that because I actually enjoyed this stuff. But what some might argue is mind numbing regulations that are super complicated. We have been debating within PwC, and I've been on a number of panels. I mean, just how to debate the application of these regulations, but. 
the judge spent what, in my view, an inordinate amount of time on the, the statute, less amount of time on, on the regulations to really what appeared to be more a, a, a policy or almost intent-based type of, of, of decision. But maybe talk a little bit about the court's rationale and, and how the judge kind of proceeded down, down its path. Sure. I, I think you're absolutely right, Doug, in your characterization that this is very much a policy-based rather than um, you're going in and taking a scalpel to the regulations. He certainly didn't do that. Um, I think if you take a look at, you know, going back to the policy argument that the judge was following, uh, when, you, when you look at the, the words that are in the regulations, they talk very much about trying to identify to focus on this separation that's taking place between activities and income as being something that you need some tools in place to create. And I'd ask you know, the practitioners who are listening in here to focus in on some of the words that are used in the statute, like activities and branch. And what the with, within the code, what it's looking for is a separation where a branch or similar establishment carries out selling activities outside of the place of manufacturing in this case. And the, the judge was um, not constrained at all by trying to examine those words around what activities are taking place or whether there was a branch or similar establishment. In fact, when it came to identifying what the activity was that the income related to, he was comfortable, as you noted in your introduction around the facts of looking at title transfer as being a sufficient activity. And that really has been at the heart of what a lot of these structures have been put in place and very much a shorthand technique or shorthand discussion. This position around having an empty head office, which had, which is still entitled to or reports uh, some of the income in the structure, there was a comfort that many practitioners took from the fact that this language around activities seemed to be a very physical type of a connotation that something like the passing of title or the booking of income was a passive of a passive nature and not active in the sense of the words that exist within the statute so it's kind of interesting that you know he didn't probe further into that particular uh, element he seemed very comfortable with the fact that the mere passage of title was appropriate to meet this definition of activity and that the income that set up that was in the head office or attributable to the head office um, would be situs there just as a result of that passage of title that was taking place. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting, Tom, is that the the regulations still clearly as well as d2 still have that activities comment and or still have that activities language and you know what what i had always felt at least prior to this decision is that kind of going back to the the statutory policy right was that they were concerned that taxpayers were going to be separating the sales activities from the manufacturing activities and a manufacturing activity absolutely involves kind of converting some some type something right that as the manufacturing process and there's regulations on that but every manufacturer once it's done manufacturing has to then transfer its product presumably to a distributor or or somewhere 
And yeah. so, you know, my view before this decision, and 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 this is what we had debated was well, just the mere transfer of title or transferring that product from a manufacturer then to a distributor could not in and of itself be a sales activity. Those sales activities are what the distributors do. It's what salespeople do. And in the Whirlpool case, those two activities, you know, the, the distribution activities were all taking place in the U.S. and that was acknowledged. And, you know, other than that transfer pricing language or that language that was mentioned in the transfer pricing report, you know, there really wasn't anything else taking place. And so, you know, one fundamental question, and I love your reaction, does, does, does the interpretation, it, the, the language still exists in the statute and the regulations? And so I'm, I'm, I'm struggling as an advisor on how I square that language that is still in the regulations and the statute with ultimately what the decision was, was made by the tax court judge. Right. So, yeah, absolutely, Doug. And when we talk about intercompany activity, you're right calling something a sale is somewhat strained. What we typically look at that as is perhaps a delivery has taken place, but there's not a selling activity necessarily. There's no promotion that's taking place. You, you're just passing it on to the next part of the value chain in the, in the corporation without any sort of marketing or sales activity in a, in a commercial sense. And that really is where I think, you know, the judge, took issue with this is if we really looked at trying to finite, I think what his concern was is if we tried to find out something like sales and limit that to a third party situation, that it would still give companies the opportunity to confound the intent of the statute, which was focused on this separation of income. If the, if the, if the branch rules were only triggered once you had something which truly was a sale and involved an activity, that might again sort of limit the application of this. And you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the bridge that needs to be made here, the gap that exists is the statute doesn't say that. The statute does talk in terms of activities. And when you move to the regs, it talks about it in terms of sales activities. And uh, what I think the judge was very much focused on, it's almost a situation where the intent has overridden the actual words in the statute. And you know, I don't want to profess that one or the other is right. I just want to observe that difference that when you take, if you read through the case and you reflect upon the rationale here, that it's almost as if going back to the congressional intent and the language in the blue book at the time, what the what the judge has done is determined that that is the principle that should apply, which then the consequence of that is when you take a look at what that means in a future sense in terms of the application of this, this holding, is it going to be very broad that it, this could touch any situation where income of any type or of any description has been moved away from manufacturing activity, that it would seem that what uh, would be a consequence of this is we're not going to work within rules or words like sales or words like activities, but rather it's a much broader um, range of income, which could become subject to these, the outcome that Whirlpool experienced in this case. Yeah. So one of the questions, Tom, that I've been re reflecting on is, does this fundamentally change the the framework, uh, both of the statute and, and the regulations? And 
I would posit that a tax court can cannot, you know, first of all, change. Obviously, it can interpret a a statute and and can interpret regulations. And what I actually find almost ironic in this case is that the the tax court did not spend a lot of time parsing these regulations that we have spent so many hours contemplating. Kind of again, sort of had the more results oriented decision. But then at the end of the case did have the opportunity because one of the, the, the petitioners, one of Whirlpool's arguments was that these regulations were, were invalid. And so the judge kind of dismissed, frankly, some of the detailed mechanics of the regulations. There was even a Hemingway reference, which you got to love tax court decisions with Hemingway references. Um, and, and, but so effectively did not really respect the regulations, but then also had that they, held that they were valid at, at the end of the decision. And so I'm, I'm really struggling with how we square what is still in the regulations with, with the tax court decision. And, and the way I am trying to think about it and, and welcome your views is that, well, we need to apply the regulations to these set of facts, right? Because this tax court decision will apply to these set of facts. But as you well know, there are just a, a, a almost infinite number of variations of different business models, you know, even outside the, the Maquiladora context where we need to try to apply these rules. And so right. how do we try, try to square the this new interpretation of these regulations, if you even want to call it that, with what the regulations still say? Right. And that's our job as practitioners, I think, is first and foremost, we still have to look to the law. We need to look to the code and the regs that have been created around this, interpreting the language within it and what's been provided to us by Congress and by Treasury. Uh, so that's still an important part of our job. And in that sense, what the judge did in this case, he did sort of help us interpret at least one area. Uh, which is around if you wanted to try to take a very narrow definition of the term activities, which does exist in the regulations, is he saying, don't do that because we think, or he thinks just anything can be a, an activity. It can be a non-physical type of um, act as well. It can be something like just booking income or passing title through an entity uh, in that sense, I think the regulations uh, haven't been at all harmed or there wasn't any um, sort of disregard to those regulations. But, but the second thing that we did need to do as practitioners, which I think we always need to do, is not draw too much comfort from just the words that exist in a statute or the regulations. Yes, that's important and we want to be hyper-technical in our analysis, but we still got to take a step back and look at what was intended and determine if we fail on a technical argument, will we still have a policy argument left behind? And that's just, that's good tax planning, I think, is to, in any case, not just the subpart F area, but to make sure that as we're making very deliberate and precise arguments that take a literal reading of the, of the rules themselves and as they've been written, do we still feel comfortable that we can make that policy argument if we have to? And I think that's where, uh, if you take a look at the Whirlpool, Whirlpool facts, um, there might've been some things done which could have helped out the taxpayer in the long run that if you really did, um, it's pretty clear that there was a lot of activity taking place in Mexico the taxpayer in this case owned assets, had employees as a result of the check the box rules. 
um, if that income could have been um, and if the facts would have supported that all of that all the business processes including things like title passage were taking place in mexico i think the taxpayer would have put himself in a much better position from a policy standpoint of being able to show that he had not separated income associated with those activities and put them uh, in any other place but the place of manufacturing some sage wisdom tom on on the policy <laughs> front and i i think that it's it's really sort of it's our nature as tax lawyers and tax accountants right to really get into those technical weeds and i love those word puzzles but it's an important reminder to 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 step back and kind of think about what 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 had happened the policy and and making sure that beyond being on all fours of the statutory and regulatory language but stepping back and thinking the policy i think is a is an important lesson from from this case for sure one of the other arguments, Tom, that the tax court really didn't spend much time on, which was very disappointing to me, was once you have, once the, the court concluded that there was, you know, sales activities or sales or purchasing activities, and we ended up with a manufacturing branch and we're testing to, to figure out what would be allocated back to the remainder, the way those rules operate is, is that once you have a manufacturing branch, that you have to draw a box around them, is what we call it. In other words, treat it as a separate corporation for, for U.S. federal income tax purposes. And the, there was some discussion about the tax rate disparity test because w without getting into a lot of detail, generally the, the way the rules work is that they wanted to prevent companies from being able to separate, for example, the manufacturing activities, which may take place in a high tax jurisdiction with sales activities, which would be in a low tax jurisdiction um, to, to create the, the, the subpart F. In other words, separating kind of the high tax and, and the low tax. And so the court, I think, as applying the rate disparity test said, well, listen, Mexico is subject to tax on a sliver of those profits in Mexico at 17% and that the residual income or the income back at the remainder wasn't subject to tax in Luxembourg. So that was 0%. And so it kind of thus implied that at least for purpose of the tax rate disparity test, you actually look to see under local law principles, what income was subject to tax in, in Mexico, which, which makes sense to me. But then once you apply, once you fall within the branch rules and you have to treat it as a separate corporation, my view, and I, I think still view, is that, well, you would then need to look to arm's length principles to determine how you would allocate income between the, the manufacturing branch and the remainder. And in this particular fact pattern, pretty much everything in the court acknowledged was taking place in Mexico. Now, some was at the Mexican disregarded entity. A lot of it was at the most of it was at the Mexican branch of Luxembourg through the property plan and equipment, the RAWs and, and, and those activities. And again, the only really thing that seemed to, to, to exist in Luxembourg was the, the title transfer. So if you would then draw a box around those, those two different entities, my, I'm no transfer pricing person, Tom, as you well know, but what I've been, what I've learned over the years is that risk of loss does not get much, if any, of a return under transfer pricing principles, which would then tell us that all of that income really should have been allocated to the Mexican CFC or the deemed Mexican CFC. And if that were the case, none of this would be subpart F income. So do you think that that omission was intentional, Tom, or what is your reaction to that? Because it's something that I've still really been struggling with, and maybe it's just something that we're going to have to wait for, for another day and another tax court decision to try to get an answer to that. 
Well, that, yeah, that part's true because you, you won't find the answer to that, I don't think, in the Whirlpool case itself. But yeah, the transfer pricing aspects of this, I think, are really important. Um, what's both what's said and what's not said. And when you think about, uh, you know, again, what a taxpayer might do to help themselves out in this case, if if you know that the concern from a policy standpoint is that separation of income, is take every opportunity you have from a transfer pricing standpoint to document what the return is that is associated with the manufacturing operations themselves. What's important with respect to the Maquila arrangement here is that the Maquila had a, has a special regime in Mexico, as we mentioned before, that it's subject to a different set of transfer pricing rules that are not necessarily arm's length rules. They're prescribed uh, and formulary, and they will always result in an outcome which is gonna be lower for, for compensation of the manufacturing location than what you might find in an arm's length inquiry. And the court in this case, you know, didn't spend a lot of time trying to uh, measure or reaffirm what the income allocations were. But I think it was an important point, just as you said, to make sure that what was happening was the taxpayer in all of his documentation was pointing to the fact that Mexico was entitled to this income, Mexico, and that the manufacturing operations generated this income. Um, it, it's, it's a fact that no one should be ashamed of, that there is a distinction between the way Mexico requires the related party compensation to be measured. Uh, but I don't think the taxpayer provided himself many opportunities to present that argument because of things like the title flow that surrounded it as well. So yeah, one other observation too, with respect to transfer pricing, which is incredibly important, is as a taxpayer, you're always in control of your facts too, until you write them down and they've been um, given some time to age. Because what the court also pointed out in this case was the taxpayer had documented perhaps some different facts in his transfer pricing documentation. Um, different views of the same facts in different reports. And it's unfortunate, um, I think, but what had been presented to uh, the government Luxembourg was to indicate that where they uh, you know, said in fact that we do have a permanent establishment and in Mexico, uh, while at the same time they were, uh, yet no income was allocable to that. Um, you know, the court was, that left an impression upon the court, the fact that they was able to find um, a transfer pricing report for Mexico, which seemed to have indicate a different outcome than what was provided as detail to the Luxembourg government in their ruling. Um, all those things are explainable, but when they've been, uh, you know, again, written down by the taxpayer who had control of those facts and then left to age for some time, that becomes a very difficult thing to argue against um, with the court going forward, it leaves an impression and it leaves a record that uh, can be very difficult to argue against. So yeah, a couple really important transfer pricing takeaways from the case as well. 
So, Tom, do you think that the the decision would have been any different post U.S. tax reform? Because, you know, back in 1962, when Subpart F was originally enacted, that was really the movement into our what we referred to as a deferral regime. Right, income was not subject to U.S. tax until it was ultimately in the cash was brought back to to the U.S. in the form of dividend or similar distribution. Subpart F was enacted to try to prevent moving portable income, if you will, around and into low tax jurisdictions. And, and the judge was obviously very focused on that as we had discussed earlier in, in the podcast. Well, now we have this new system of guilty of our global intangible low tax mm-hmm. income. We have spent a lot of time here on cross-border tax talks talking about guilty, which now all of that income, even if it was not subpart F, would have been subject to tax at guilty. Now, obviously that income would have been potentially subject to the 250 deduction, so subject to tax at 10.5% as opposed to subject to tax at, at 21%. But do, do you think that this new guilty regime sort of changes the calculus, or at least from a policy perspective with respect to how now the, how the US tax system works currently? That's a great question, and it, it really does reflect uh, you know, something that people have been struggling with in terms of um, the tax system since tax reform, TCJA, a couple of years ago, which is you know, subpart F system still exists out there and it's still very important to many companies in terms of their overall tax liability. Um, but they are still separate systems and they're still and not integrated in that sense that when you take a look at what Whirlpool was trying to achieve here, which is a structure that many other taxpayers have put in place as well, was uh, it was directed at trying to preserve the deferral of income offshore. And Guilty says, yep, we're gonna, there's no such thing essentially as deferral of income offshore unless it's uh, been subject to a, a rate of tax, which will allow us to sort of fully offset that with the tax that's been paid offshore as well. And, but subpart F I think is, it's still there. It's still something that is important in terms of its overall influence on a company's structural tax rate, effective tax rate. And one which when we think about it, we still need to think about it independently. I don't think there's an integration of that. That yes, when there was, subpart F was the first attempt to try to look at offshore income, and it was concerned with the portability of income. Guilty is associated with more with, it picks up any kind of income, doesn't have to just be passive. It just takes a look at, has it been subjected to a sufficient rate of taxation outside the US? And if not, there's incremental US tax to pay. Uh, but it, the court in this case, they they weren't really struggling with whether or not the income had been subject to tax. You know, that concept now in the terms of things like the um, anti-tax avoidance directive, the so-called ATAD rules um, that are focused on hybrid type situations where you're creating untaxed income or non-taxed income is at the heart of what those rules are at. Um, This wasn't really focusing on non-taxed income. So part F doesn't focus on non-taxed income. So part F is focused on sort of the type of income that you have. Um, so part F does provide a high tax exception that says that there's a certain level of taxation, 90% of the U.S. rate, which we don't care if you shifted away that passive income or mobile income. But um, yeah, to answer your question, it's a great question, Doug. I mean, does somebody need to sit back and think about 
the integration of those two systems from a policy standpoint. Um, if they would have put guilty in, maybe they wouldn't have had to put subpart F in back in 1962. I totally agree, Tom. Um, maybe here just at, at, at the end to, to wrap, would love to hear your views on what what advice would you have for taxpayers? One of the things I think that we are going to see as a result of COVID-19 and frankly, even before COVID-19 as a result of the, the trade wars that we've seen and we've dedicated some time to is that supply chains are going to be changing and whether it is related yeah. to, to medical equipment or just you know the, the, the trade war that, that is still ongoing, supply chains are going to be, to be changing. What advice would you give post Whirlpool decision for taxpayers and advisors as we're starting to rethink you know, how we structure those and and obviously in, in a tax efficient manner to try to maximize overall cash returns associated with those changes. Um, I'm not sure that that has changed a lot. I think that some of the things that I learned a long time ago are still applicable today, maybe even more so in light of that. And you know, at the end of the day, when you take a look at tax planning and what we try to do, it's um, it's important, incredibly important that they complement and enhance the operations of the business and don't sort of conflict with them. And I mean that two different ways. Um, you know, first of all, we, you, you, we've done a lot of planning around principal company structures, um, manufacturing structures, things like uh, you're seeing in the Whirlpool facts. And one point of judgment that will always be made about a tax structure is, did that interfere with or preclude any operational effectiveness? And in the case of the Makila situation, um, I think we passed that test. The tax professionals passed that test, is that what a Makila was, as we talked about in the introduction, was it was an operating incentive. It was put in place to help companies to encourage manufacturing in Mexico and to make sure they could do so in a way which avoided a lot of administrative complexities. So that box gets checked. Um, what we also wanna say, I think, is that uh, with respect to our tax planning is that we have uh, helped underpin the way the business operates, that our explanation is always consistent with this is how the business operates, that we're not doing something artificial, that there's a, an explanation for it as well that can be provided. And to put that in the Whirlpool context, what I'm saying there is that if you were to explain to someone who happened to be in the marketing department, or happened to be in the quality assurance department, what was going on in the planning and trying to explain why income existed in any place other than Mexico. Is it something that's, that's easily explainable, that's understandable? It, it needs to be something that we can always be able to fall back and say we can explain it to others in the business. They're helping to operate the business from the standpoint that they can say, yeah, that makes sense. That's the way we operate in this case, the income, it should be in Mexico. And I think that would be consistent with the outcome we'd wanna see uh, to build a defendable case under the Whirlpool decision is to be able to say that, to go back to the court and say, all my income belongs in Mexico. It may not all belong in the Mexican Maquila entity because of the way that Mexican tax rules work, but any of that incremental income is associated with those manufacturing operations. And that's a story that you can tell to the quality assurance guy or to the marketing guy as well. Uh, so 
yeah, two rules uh, I think that you can check off here. One would be that let's make sure we sort of do no harm to the business, that operations can operate effectively and unimpeded. And secondly, that it's explainable in, a, in the sense of that story is how the business operates. Well said, Tom. We'll, we're going to leave it at that. So thanks for tuning in <laughs> to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Tom Quinn, PwC International Tax Part Partner, for joining me on Cross-Border Tax Talks. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Mm -hmm.